That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, JDK Winnekin. Welcome everyone to another episode of This Show Is All About You, where for the next hour we'll uh, be moving and having through, moving through and having conversations that uh, maybe go beyond the headlines a little bit, dig a little deeper uh, than often our debates about various issues uh, tend to do, and hopefully uh, find areas where we can connect as human beings above all things, including uh, our differences. Uh, if you are listening live to this today, uh, thank you so much for doing so. If you're catching it as a podcast, Thank you so much for subscribing and leaving a review. I certainly appreciate it. You can also reach out, uh, connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You can also find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, where I post uh, copies of this uh, show and as well as uh, follow-up posts and original writing and more. So you can check that out as well. I'd like to thank you uh, or thank at the outset here Airway Science for Kids, this show's sponsor. You can check them out at airside.org, and you'll hear more about them and their fantastic mission uh, during the breaks in the show. And uh, before we get started uh, with today's show, we want to give you a quick update on uh, what's happening in the search for Odin Bartlow, uh, kidney for Odin Bartlow. A couple episodes ago, I had his mother and sister on to talk a little bit about kidney donation in that process. And a number of people have responded to that episode uh, positively and have taken the questionnaire to see if they could be a living donor either for Odin himself or maybe for someone else. That includes me, uh, and I've made it to the second round of consideration for that. So uh, I will keep you posted about how that is going and how Odin is doing. Uh, this is the Memorial Day episode of this show, and uh, even though you're listening to it on a Monday at the earliest, we are recording it in advance. Uh, and today is uh, the day after a real tragedy is when we're recording this. And so uh, to kick off today's show with uh, the news segment that I call What in the World is Going On, that name seems to be appropriate today because there's really only one story that I think we can talk about. What are we doing? What are we doing? Just days after a shooter walked into a grocery store, to gun down African-American patrons. We have another Sandy Hook on our hands. What are we doing? There have been more mass shootings than days in the year. That, of course, is Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut yesterday on the floor of the U.S. Senate uh, giving an impassioned uh, series of statements about the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, uh, that as of this recording was yesterday. And so today the, the nation is in a state of shock. And my guess is uh, that shock will be continuing for quite some time. And uh, it was really the only thing to really start with today. And uh, there is no guest uh, for this show this week, uh, in part because it's Memorial Day and I have some things to, to say about it. But also uh, it seemed important to uh, take some time to reflect on this event 
as well. And so I'm just going to start right out of the gate today uh, talking a little bit about that. And, uh, of course, what happened in Uvalde, Texas yesterday, a lone gunman, 18 years old, shot and killed 19 students and their two teachers, uh, all in the same classroom, uh, fourth graders and a third grader. And, uh, and the shooter himself was, was killed by police after barricading himself in that same classroom. And uh, it's, later this year will be 10 years since the, uh, since the school shooting at Sandy Hook, Connecticut. And, of course, Chris Murphy being from Connecticut, feeling that very profoundly. Uh, and chillingly similar circumstances to what happened in Sandy Hook, at least on the surface of it. There's certainly more being discovered, and certainly there'll be more information by the time this show airs. Uh, I thought after Sandy Hook that that was the type of thing, a bunch of children being gunned down in their school, that would galvanize change, and it, it really did not. Uh, instead, what's happened over the past 10 years is that the divides over guns in American societies have, have deepened even further, along with the divides over just about everything else that uh, is causing problems, whether that's questions of race or, or political identification or inequality and inequity, uh, you name it. And and 10 years ago at the time, uh, the lunatic fringes came out and sometimes even questioned whether the shooting had ever happened or not. And unfortunately, that has become a much more popular uh, anti-government and authority, no matter what part of the playbook, among more and more people that are not in the extremes. And so here, 10 years later, after that, I'm sharing today many of the same reactions that I'm sure all of you are having. Uh, you name an emotion, it's probably there, uh, at least the difficult ones. For me, uh, at this moment, above all, it's frustration steeped in anger that despite the differences that we can have on this issue, we cannot seem to even attempt reaching a consensus on how to keep people, especially children, from being gunned down in schools or grocery stores or places of worship or concerts or wherever else. If you take a look at the list of schools where there have been mass shootings in the last 10 years since Sandy Hook, it takes several scrolls through the list on social media or on your computer to read how many there are. And certainly there's common factors in these, right? The, the availability, the widespread availability of guns of all kinds, the uh, disaffected, disturbed, disconnected, sideways individuals, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, mentally ill seems to be the label that gets thrown around a lot. That seems to me to mean less and less as time goes by. And oftentimes is used by commentators as a way to divide ourselves away as human beings from those that we would consider mentally ill. So therefore they're abnormal. So we can't necessarily take a look at any sort of humanness that, that might be having here. We have to look at it as uh, something that almost came from outer space rather than something that came from the human soul or the human psyche. But really, you know, rather than add my voice to uh, the cacophony of arguments about the things that should be done or, or shouldn't be done, even though those things must happen and should happen, what I'd like to do at the front end of the show is to, is to go a little deeper. That is part of what this show is about. And to talk a little bit more about how really what I see here is this, this problem, this terrible problem we have with this in this country. For all the reasons that we spend a lot of time debating about is in a, large, in a lot of ways to me a symptom of what is a much deeper problem. And while the solution of what to do about these things is going to take time because there are so many guns out there and enough people who really want them either for self-defense reasons or because they're really, really, really enjoy gun culture. It's going to be hard to get rid of all those things. And yet the status quo is also not acceptable either. And if we looked at this as a symptom of a larger problem, those symptoms need treatment for sure. 
and those conversations about about sensible gun laws and access of guns to people who uh, should not have them should continue, and a lot more can be done on that front. Uh, but the symptom of mass murder of innocents, um, that's a terrible result of that problem. But in the end, those are just symptoms. So treating the symptoms of something doesn't cure the illness. So what is it that I think is underneath all this? It's underneath all of this and all of the other issues that bring us to the point where we are at each other's throats all too often. Poverty, inequality, inequity, racism, sexism, greed, and entitlement. I'd like to suggest the possibility that we spend time, no matter where we land on these questions, on the idea, the possibility perhaps that the deeper illness is that we as human beings, at least in this country, are losing our ability individually and in groups to connect with one another and to empathize and to sit with the reality of disagreement. On some level, we are wired in our bodies and our minds and our hearts for connection, yet disconnecting from one another as people around any of the above issues I just listed or anything else often will lead us into reactions and worldviews that are based on things like fear or simple answers to complex problems that end up blaming others and shield us from our own responsibilities or selfishness disguised as calls for freedom or liberty and the like. And when we do that, we categorize people or situations or we run away from them or we huddle together with others who won't challenge us but will only reinforce our beliefs or people we can blame or we can demonize out of fear. And we end up forgetting the inherent tension involved in any form of democratic government and perhaps in any civilization. The tension between our own individual rights to be safe, to be free, and what is best for, as the preamble to the Constitution puts it, the general welfare. Back in the 17th century, the philosopher John Locke put forward a a piece called The Two Treatises on Government, which was the best articulation among several during the period of the Enlightenment about the so-called social contract. And the social contract, which was also ended up being codified in the U.S. Constitution and it was mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, essentially says the following. Around the individual rights that people have for the government not to interfere in certain parts of their lives, there is an understanding that some individual freedoms are curbed and limited so that the largest amount of people, the people who live in the country, can benefit. And that there is a contract there and that there is a tension there. And that the whole purpose of government in that sense was to mitigate the debates on how to balance those things out. And seemingly, I wonder if at part of this illness is more and more people are embracing the individual side of that contract and are rejecting the social side of that contract. I don't know that for sure, but I think it's worth thinking about. And lest that sound too abstract because I'm talking about a 17th century philosopher, let me just suggest that we actually know how to do this. And this flies in the face of the things that oftentimes get said after these mass shootings. Nothing can be done. Nothing will get done. As if somehow that's inevitable. When really in the end, it's all about the choices we make. No matter what side we're on in this. For example, there are fewer fatal car accidents today per capita in this country and in most places around the world than there were just 30 years ago. And that's because of efforts to make driving safer. Everything from instituting seatbelt laws, which a lot of people complained about as an infringement upon their rights. Prior to that, the end of open container 
uh, allowing open containers of alcohol in cars for people to drive in the 50s and 60s. That was also seen by some people at the time as an infringement upon their liberties. All of those things made driving safer. And after all, every day we stop at stoplights, most of us. We don't drive on sidewalks because they're not designated for that. There are a number of things we do that are for the benefit of other people and still give us the right to go about and live our lives. Another example, I think, from this, air travel. When we travel on an airline, when we go to the airport, we fly somewhere, there is a clear, accepted social contract there if you know what to look for. We trust the guys up front to fly the plane that they've been trained to do it, they know how to do it, and they can do it safely. We all agree as passengers not to cause any trouble on that plane because we're all looking to do the same thing. And we, for the most part, contrary to you know all the stories you can sometimes hear about this, majority of us listen to the crew that is trained to help us. And what ends up happening when someone tries to violate that? All the reasonable people stop it from happening. <laughs> and none of them take any time to say, well, where's this person coming from? What do they believe in? Who do they vote for? They stop them because there's a recognition of the social threat, in this case to the people on that aircraft, by that person who's doing what they individually feel they have the right to do. And all during the flight, there is sensible regulation for security before the flight, during the flight, and there are people in charge of making sure other planes don't crash into one another in the process. And when there's an accident, there are demands by all people involved, and there are mechanisms in government to investigate and to make sure the same type of accident never happens again. The idea is to make air travel safer, and it has worked. Air travel is safer today than it ever has been, and it's 10 times as big as it was just 20 years ago. So the claims that around this, that the status quo is okay with guns, is not true. That is clear because people are getting murdered. The ideas and claims that there are quick fixes that can, that can fix that, that just gun laws can do that, that may be an important thing to talk about, but it addresses just the symptom. We have to look at ourselves. What are the ways that we allow ourselves to disconnect from one another? Or allow our children to grow up with more disconnection than connection? Or allow adults to suffer and struggle in silence with whatever it is, no matter their circumstances? There's a lot of sources we could blame or identify. Social media, pseudo-communities and echo chambers. The obsession sometimes we have with making things into cultures like guns, for example. But also communities around just about anything else. Conspiracy theories. You name it. Video games, violent or otherwise where kids can vanish for hours, and adults, into non-real worlds at the expense of really learning how to connect with themselves, with uncomfortable things in the world, and with each other, and then are surprised when they feel disconnected, disdained, and alone. Too much of so many things can only lead to disconnection and isolation and shame, and then problems. In my own recovery from addiction years ago, I experienced and saw all of this firsthand. How people got to that point was a complex mixture. The common thread, though, was that they either had never learned to connect with themselves and with others or how to sustain it within themselves or with others. They had a fear of vulnerability and emotions and had tons of bottled up anger and it came out sideways. I used to work with young men, most of them young men, who struggled with addiction 
to video games and technology, and it's a very real thing. Many of them did not grow up with any idea of how to really connect with themselves, to identify an emotion, to really, despite their desire to have friends and have meaningful relationships, didn't know how to start them or sustain them. And it led to very real despair. And those were the people who got help. This is going to be the long game. Because all of us have to really, I think, take a look at where we stand with this social contract and where we stand with our ability to connect with ourselves and with others, to sit with discomfort in conversations and debates over issues like what is happening right now. Discomfort isn't the enemy to finding solutions. Neither is compromise. And any short-term address of what is happening with mass murder is going to take that compromise, period. It's just the reality. We have to recognize that in our own time and in our own nation, we are temporal beings. Our longest standing reality over time is our consistent humanity, our ability to love, to give, to outreach, to forgive, to listen, to see beyond our different opinions. That is us at our best. We've seen enough of us at our worst, it seems to me. And if at some point the mass murder of children can't get us to see that no matter what side of the debate we're on, then clearly the problem goes much deeper than just guns, as bad as that is. The outcomes we should be talking about are about them and about us and about the future of what we want to be a healthy society. Moments like this shake our belief in that. And it's understandable why. And in the end, asking ourselves to say, what do we actually pledge our allegiance to? might be the question to ask. For me, as time goes by, it's less and less about pledging allegiance to a deity, to a flag, to an idea, and more and more it's pledging allegiance to recognizing and respecting and living to the best of my ability, recognizing the inherent dignity, equality, and value of every human being, and doing the best I can to be kind, giving, forgiving, and steadfast and working through disagreements. Anything other than that, I think, is a mistake because then that allows all of us to honor the social contract and live more safe lives, freer lives, and to pursue our best selves. So that's what I have to say about that. When we come back on this show is all about you on this Memorial Day, let's talk about remembrance and Memorial Day, what it is and what it isn't and how it can be counterproductive for us if we're not careful and that how and what it is about remembrance that says a lot about us. Stick around. We'll be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families 
peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you on this Memorial Day. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, talk about that for the rest of our time together. Of course, just a clip from the annual uh, ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknowns at Arlington Cemetery, just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, that is something that uh, I played that clip mainly because that's one of the one of the images uh, that we associate most every Memorial Day. There is a ceremony at Arlington Cemetery at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, that has become kind of a larger symbol of our Memorial Day remembrances. And uh I want to spend the rest of our time today talking about that. And, and it's not actually disconnected from what I started the show with either. And so um, we'll sort of explore that a little bit. And so when we ask ourselves, and I asked this last year on Memorial Day, like, what, do we, what are we actually memorializing on Memorial Day? And usually what we hear is, is we're honoring the people who have sacrificed their lives for our country. And that, of course, is a very serious thing and worth remembering those who have lost their lives uh, in service, whenever that happened to be and wherever it happened to be. When we take a good look at that statement, though, sacrifice their lives for our country, it can very quickly become very complicated. It can become very vague, what that actually means. And I think it's actually really instructive every Memorial Day to really take some time to examine some things, uh, and not just those things that we tend to do, like, you know, appreciation of the freedoms that we have in this country. I get that, that there are people who have died when our country has sent them overseas uh, to fight wars uh, and whether we agree with them or not. And and yet it's always as a historian, I uh, have always been skeptical of taking just those easy statements at face value and applying them. Uh, I like to examine them. And I think sometimes we get when we examine them. We can get to some deeper meaning that perhaps can go further than simply something as that we kind of throw out every single year as perhaps a slogan that over time slogans can lose their value. Uh, in some real way, remembrance is about, at least at first, keeping something alive that we have lost. When we are in living memory of a war, of course, it's, it's, it's memorializing and remembering those who died because their death is still immediate. Their death is still visceral. Their death is still impactful to their loved ones, to their families, to their friends, spouses, children, wherever they might be, and to honor them. And one of the, I think, the finer things about Memorial Day is 
how people will care for the families of people who have died in, in recent conflicts. Uh, that's, I think it's one of our more noble sets of gestures uh, that we see every Memorial Day. Uh, and so that's sort of where it starts. Um, and that's a normal thing. You know, we, remembrances uh, you know, are at the center of things like funerals, right? which are for us more so than the person who is gone. Uh, but as time goes by, of course, and the years go by and the decades go by, and, and the people who knew those individuals who died pass away themselves, remembrance can become more symbolic and become symbolic of something larger. And oftentimes that has everything to do with the present <laughs> and not so much to do with the past. And let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. So, for example, um, if we're talking about the Vietnam War, Memorial Day can be times to reflect on the futility and the unfairness and the tragedy of that frustrating war and its failure. If it's about the Civil War, it can manifest in the battle that we've seen recently over monuments, Confederate monuments. Should they be honored? After, Memorial Day, after all, started in part because of a push by, um, by uh, Confederate sympathizers in the late 19th century, early 20th century to memorialize their sacrifice. Uh, with World War II, it can lead to this larger idea of World War II as the so-called good war against forces of evil that had to be fought, and, you know, or a necessary war, if we want to be a little more gracious about it. And yet, what ends up happening is the more years go by, is our, in, our tracking of those individual lives and those they left behind, it lessens with each year, and they become more and more of a symbol of something that we want to value now that it may, maybe didn't reflect or, or, or reach accurately at the time that they occurred. And I think it's important to recognize that, that remembrance is just as much about now as it is about then. And over time, it actually becomes more about now. That idea of World War II as the good war is, is an example. In a lot of historical literature of late, there have been increasingly critical looks at this idea of World War II as the so-called good war, not because the idea is to label World War II as a bad war, but to really tackle the idea um, and really address the idea, can any war be truly good when we talk about the effects that it has on human beings at the time and after that? And it, it encourages us to take a look at, are we creating myths out of war that really didn't reflect what was happening at the time or the motives of the people that we are memorializing? I'll give you an example of that in case that sounds too esoteric or too distant. Uh, people who've listened to the show for a while have heard me talk about my, my visits to the uh, American Cemetery at Omaha Beach in Normandy, France. It's a very powerful uh, place, and it's established right at the top of the, the point on Omaha Beach in France where American forces uh, broke out uh, of the beach and got up onto the bluffs and were able to get behind the German defenses and begin the process of defeating them that day and bringing more Allied troops on shore. And, it, of course, it was the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany. Uh, the way that story is talked about today, and I've, I was just there a couple years ago for the uh, 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, and what everyone talked about, of course, was that it was the liberation of uh, conquered peoples from Nazi Germany. And certainly that is the result of the war. It liberated occupied France as well as the rest of occupied Western Europe, and it was the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany, at least on the Western Front. It also, what people talked about was it was the beginning of the end of the Holocaust, or increasing awareness among Western powers of what Hitler was doing to Jews in uh, the East. 
and American soldiers found more and more evidence of this as they entered into Germany in the months after after D-Day. And, of course, there was also, it was talked about defeating Hitler and his, his madness, this racist madness of Nazism. And for all these reasons, you know, it's been seen more and more by people as a good war, or at least a necessary war. And there might be some truth to the necessary side, and I think that's important to recognize uh, in this. But the reality, when we look at this in history, when we take, go back and we actually take a look at what the guys who fought there and the guys who died there, uh, what they fought for, or what they believed about what they were doing didn't necessarily reflect any of those things. Not everybody who stormed the beach uh, at Omaha Beach in Normandy was thinking about liberation of conquered peoples or helping Jews or defeating Hitler and racism. They might have been thinking about defeating Hitler so they could go home. But when we look at the diaries and hear the accounts and the interviews with, with their surviving families, there's a whole heap of various reasons why these men fought. And... When we talk about necessary war, it often takes the fear out of it, the doubt out of it, right? The carnage, the pain, uh, everything, the horror that goes on with modern combat. And so even though those all had ingredients, they weren't necessarily the motivations for men at the time. And so if we just focus on the men who fell on D-Day, right, just to keep it focused, they may or may not have been motivated by all the things that we now associate with World War II as the good war. It could have been a combination of them or none of them. They could have just fought for one another. My point here is that when we try to create a cohesive single narrative about these things, when we memorialize them, what we're trying to do is really impossible if we really want it to reflect reality. Oftentimes we do that because it's a way for us to maybe feel better and to find some level of meaning around the enormous losses involved, in particular that conflict. Authors like Stephen Ambrose did this for their entire career, writing books like Band of Brothers and others that really tr championed the idea that these men were fighting for higher ideals at most and at worst for each other, which was still really darn good. But it's more limited than that, right? As more time goes by, I, I find myself um, asking questions that people like Paul Fussell, who was a World War II vet himself, and... Um, and has become quite a critic of this idea of a good war, more and more what he says about this. He challenges the idea that any war can be good and that it's probably not good for our overall human health or national health to view them as good, perhaps necessary, but not good. Because, as he's pointed out in several places, war itself happens when the guardrails we as humans somewhere, somehow fail in their mission to protect us. Soldiers, no matter where they're coming from, fight when those in charge of them have failed to prevent that outcome, either by no fault of their own or in some places because of it, all the way up to embracing it as a good and necessary thing like Hitler once did or Putin seems to do today. Others slide into it like Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon in Vietnam or are thrust into it like FDR in World War II. My point here, I guess, is to me the Memorial Day that we have should become more and more, I think, about holding on to the reality of those lives cut short by the fact that they had to go fight, that they were sent to fight. Even if fighting was the best of all awful options, like I think World War II ultimately was. But there was little consensus when we go back in history to really take a close look at it. There was little consensus on World War II in the United States when it started in the late 1930s. And contrary to what people believe, after December 7th, 1941, the whole country didn't just unite uniformly for the rest of the war around the war effort. There was a lot 
of division and doubt and resentments and exhaustion. Three different occasions, the country almost ran out of money to fight the war and, and war bonds had to be raised. And there was a lot of criticism and a lot of fatigue, even as early as a month after the Pearl Harbor attack. Government was worried that people were losing their enthusiasm to fight the war. And of course, there are all the stories of individual people whose reasons for fighting, in this case in World War II, just to stick with that, in the good war, so-called, challenge that idea of that. And I'm thinking of, of two groups in, uh, two, uh, yeah, two groups in particular that oftentimes don't, don't get mentioned. And uh, the first that I want to mention is a guy named Dory Miller. His name was Doris Miller. And Dory Miller uh, was a black man born in Waco, Texas. And on December 7, 1941, he was a, uh, a cook's assistant on the USS West Virginia, a battleship moored on Battleship Row, the primary target of the Japanese planes that were attacking Pearl Harbor in a surprise attack. And of course, that brought the United States into World War II. Dory Miller, as has been shown in movies like Pearl Harbor, where Cuba Gooding Jr. played him, uh, as well as in, in, other, in other films, uh, in the midst of the attack, uh, went to his battle stations, found, found the gun emplacement that he was supposed to help at had been destroyed, and after helping his mortally wounded captain get to safety, uh, picked, got on one of the uh, machine guns alongside uh, the ship and shot down a couple of Japanese planes. And for that... Uh, Dory Miller was awarded the Navy Cross. Uh, he was not, uh, he was not awarded the Medal of Honor, much to the chagrin of, of African-American newspapers in, uh, the States that heard, heard word about this. And of course there were several others who, who posthumously or otherwise received the Medal of Honor, but they were not, uh, men of color like Dory Miller was. And what happened, of course, uh, over time went from history and into remembrance, Dory Miller uh, ended up continuing to serve. He served proudly in the U.S. Navy. He did a couple of war bond drives uh, at the request of black newspapers in the U.S., building up uh, funds for the war. But he was killed on board an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific in 1943. And a number of monuments and remembrance points were dedicated to him. There's a park in Waco, Texas, with his name on it. There's a series of schools in Texas and California and elsewhere with his name on it. The Navy in 1973 commissioned a, uh, a frigate with his name on it, the USS Dory Miller. It was decommissioned in 1991. And, uh, and then the, I guess the biggest uh, one is that the United States currently is building three brand new aircraft carriers for its current fleet, the so-called uh, Gerald Ford class carriers. And one that will be launched in 2029 is named the USS Doris Miller. And it will be the first American capital ship, large uh, carrier or similar ship to be named after an enlisted man in the history of the United States Navy. That is a major point of remembrance. And of course, because, you know, we think about remembrance in this country, remembering the names of ships like the USS Nimitz, that's a big memory of, of Chester Nimitz, the admiral who led the American victory in the Pacific in World War II. And of course, other names, you know, most carriers are named after presidents. There's the Abraham Lincoln today, the Theodore Roosevelt. There's been the George Washington before, the John F. Kennedy so this is a big deal in that sense, and it's, and it's a way to perhaps elevate the story of Dory Miller more to the point perhaps where it should have been once upon a time. That said, recent efforts in Congress, both in the Senate and in the House, by representatives to award Dory Miller 
the Medal of Honor posthumously for his uh, performance in World War II have not gone anywhere, right? And so when we look at remembrance that way, on one hand, it does reflect more of an increasing awareness of the contribution of African Americans to the war effort in this country over the last 30 years, and yet it also shows that there's still a way to go. So with that in mind, let's take another break. And when we come back after this break, we'll finish up with a few more thoughts on this on This Show is All About You. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor This Show is All About You because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, on this Memorial Day of 2022. And I wanted to finish up this last segment continuing on um, some thoughts I had about remembrance and the challenges of it and, and maybe getting to a different understanding of it. I mentioned uh, the story of Dory Miller before the break, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about another uh, group of people that fought in World War II that, uh, you know, when we think about it, certainly their, their sacrifices were no less significant than those of anybody else who fought in the war. And yet their individual experiences challenged this idea of the so-called you know, World War II being the so-called good war, which is a very popular narrative that oftentimes gets talked about on Memorial Day. And in this case, I'm thinking about the uh, 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And that organization or that group is the most decorated military unit in, in the U.S. military from the Second World War. And if you've heard of it before, there's a good chance it's because uh, you've heard the various stories, um, particularly from Ken Burns' uh, fantastic long series on World War II, simply called The War. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team was made up entirely of Japanese-American men taken from uh, and recruited directly from the internment camps that they and their families had been put in in the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941-1942. And uh, by 1940, late 42, early 43, there was an awareness among the American military that they needed to be bringing in men of all backgrounds to fight in the war in some way, shape, or form. And Japanese-American men in these camps that were spread throughout the most rural areas of the American West, uh, California, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, uh, they were given, they could either sign up or they could not. But if they signed up, they were going to be going to a combat unit, which meant a frontline unit, and they would be fighting in Europe. And they did not fight in the Pacific. There was deep concern among some in the military that if you put Japanese-American men fighting against Japanese in the Pacific, they might have cultural uh, 
you know, cultural confusion and not fight effectively or at worst turn on their comrades, uh, which was ridiculous when you talk to the men who were in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team because they saw themselves as American, first and foremost, almost without exception uh, in that sense. But these men ended up fighting in Germany and they became quickly one of the most, um, one of the most esteemed and sought after units to solve problems. Uh, whether it was in Italy, where they fought extensively, or in Germany after D-Day, uh, they fought and they suffered some of the highest percentages of losses of any unit uh, in the Second World War in either theater. And uh, they also accomplished more as one unit than many others did. And, uh, and it raises the question as to why was that? What Men, some of these men are people you've heard of, including uh, Daniel Inouye, who was the long six-time U.S. Senator from Hawaii. Honolulu's International Airport is named after him today. He was part of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. But when you think about why they fought, and then, of course, by extension, why they died, it's a lot more complicated than just simply calling it the good war or simply saying it's because they wanted to defeat Nazism. Uh, Certainly, they were going to have their feelings about Nazi racism, perhaps. But these were men who were, their own country not only didn't see them as equal, but had imprisoned them on what they looked like. And now they were being asked to go and fight and die. So why did they do it? Again, no uniformity necessarily in their answers. If we really take a time to look at each man involved. And in the end, we have to look at each person if we really want a good picture. Their motives were a complex mix of things, as were their emotions about fighting. Some of those emotions included deep resentment towards the country that now wanted them to die after having imprisoned them for being a supposed threat to the country. Alongside that, a desire to prove that they indeed were equal, that they were just as American as anybody else who wasn't Japanese. Some said they fought for one another because they recognized that their survival depended upon each other. And certainly, in there was a belief that things could be better in America, in the mission of America, and the things that they loved about America. Whether that was their communities back home, whether it was baseball, they had the same heroes as other non-Japanese did in the United States. And so when we take a look at this, certainly they were fighting for reasons that mattered to them. But I don't think any close examination of that, you can take a look at that and say, well, they were equal they were equal parts or considered to be equal parts of the american dream and the american mission and that's unfortunate and of course like many others uh other units this one took a long time to be recognized and the wrongness of their incarceration in those camps took even longer to be recognized and for apologies to be given for that from the american government that didn't happen until the 1990s and so my point here is not to kick sand on our memorializing or to lessen this notion of sacrifice that we honor from the service servicemen and women who have died uh, serving their country. It's not about that. But it's to dig, again, to dig deeper than simply where the slogans and the sayings and the symbols can take us. Those oftentimes can feel good even while we're feeling bad. I think it encourages us to use Memorial Day as to to reflect on 
Okay, if we take that idea that they were fighting for our freedoms and for the things that we have today, even though I just spent some time talking about how it's not quite that simple, if we want to believe that, how well are we taking care of what they secured? That's a question for us. That is not a question for them. And it's not a question about the past. That's a question about the present. How well are we taking care of those things? Are we willing to say that everybody who has served this country died for, the, for you know, protecting beliefs that we all value? Probably not. Human beings back then were just as complex as we are now, <laughs> with as many differing opinions then as we do now. We can ask ourselves, are we quote-unquote better because of their sacrifice? You know, it's, it's worth remembering that if a country's character and its health, overall health is reflected in how well it honors or how many people have died in service of the country, it means countries like Russia and China should be among the so-called best because they've lost the most people in modern wars. And those countries, as we know, have their own sets of problems, some of them <laughs> much more difficult and deep and unsettling than even the problems that we have here. It's such an interesting way to talk about a nation's values, to be talking about its dead, to be talking about those it's lost in wars. In the end, it's about us now and what we want those deaths to mean, what we say they do, and recognize that we are the ones determining oftentimes what that is and where we go with it. Memorializing the loss of those lives much earlier than they deserve to die. These are almost all young people. And how unfortunate it was for them and for their families in the moment at the time. Because, of course, for every one of those dead, there are scores at home whose lives would never be the same for the rest of their lives. Whether that happened 100 years ago or 100 days ago, it's the same across time. And so for me, every year that goes by, I find myself on Memorial Day focusing more on that. Because in the end, as we honor the service, rightfully so, of those who have died in service of this country, it seems to me our best outcome for that, our best focus, could be on making sure we minimize as much as humanly possible for ourselves. We minimize how many more people have to be memorialized for dying in service to this country. And that doesn't mean we should not have a strong military, that we should not have a well-trained military. Just the opposite, I would say. You can make the argument. And I support that. What it means is war, if Paul Fussell is indeed right, war itself constitutes a failure of human endeavors, then we should treat it as such. And when we honor those who die as a result, fight that, no matter what the outcome is. That is something, I think, to be truly mourning and truly remembering. The loss of those potential gifts those people could have given had they lived longer. Of the potential experiences they could have had, which they didn't get to have. The devastating effects on their families, who would never be the same. Despite the fact that they might recognize 
that it was an important war to fight in the case of World War II. But those, of course, are cold comfort, really, in the end, for people who have lost loved ones in wars. Those big statements, those appreciations, they can be honored, they can be felt by those families, but it doesn't change that reality for them. Nothing can, really. Those who died that we honor on Memorial Day did deserve to have lives that they could live. And it didn't happen. And for good or for bad, whatever you want to call that, for understandable reasons or not understandable reasons, however you want to define that, it is a tragedy they were gone. For me, that human connection to them is what connects me, at least, to this idea that connection, as I talked about at the top of the show, is the centerpiece or should be the centerpiece of what we look for in this life. Because with connection comes all those positives. Connection with one another, we see each other better. We're more forgiving. We're more loving. We listen more. We're more open to learning. We're more open to changing our mind. We're better able to see the common things that we need. Better able to accept when we don't get our way. More open to pursuing possibilities, both big and small, that can minimize conflict or prevent it from becoming something much worse. It opens us up to being much more honest with ourselves about the areas we could work on, about the areas that we are responsible for in ourselves and our role in that social contract that I talked about. Grief over loss is something that all of us will experience if we already haven't. That is a constant. It's a constant right alongside our desire for love, meaning, opportunity, pleasure, <laughs> enjoyment, relaxation. It's a large part of who we are as humans. And all those things unite us. And there's so many examples that I hope you've been able to see a little bit more of today. There's so many of those examples that show that we can do this. We can learn lessons from those who have been lost in our country's wars that can help us from sending more to die, if at all possible, while recognizing that in some cases it might not be. And those are tough decisions, really hard ones to make and to live with, no matter the outcome. But the same is true for our remembrance of those who died in our nation's wars. The same can be true for the remembrance of people who have died when they shouldn't have, including 21 people in Uvalde, Texas. What we do with that, how we honor that memory, has everything to do with us and those to come. To hopefully help more families never experience what those families in Uvalde and families in Sandy Hook 10 years ago and so many more have endured over the last few decades. So with that, on this Memorial Day, it is good to remember those things. It's, it's good to sit with that discomfort. It's good to be thankful. It's good to turn and look at those around us and tell them 
that we love them, that we appreciate them. It's a good time for self-introspection and taking a look at what each of us can do better and beginning the process yet again of trying. And when we fall short, trying and trying again. We all deserve to live our lives and live our lives safely, freely, and in connection with one another. So, with that in mind, enjoy your Memorial Day remembrances, your celebrations, your connections with those you care about. Be sure to check out wordsbyjdk.com in the next few days for a follow-up to this show. It'll also include uh, links to various things I may have mentioned. Uh, you can also contact me there with questions or um, you know comments about this episode or others. If you missed any of this episode or any others, you can download it as a podcast from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Some thank yous as always. This show is all about you. is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. This show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. The original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week. Have to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Mark and Yolanda Frazier, Bruce Bullard, Emily McFetrich, Stacey Heller, Adelina Popescu, Seth Moorman, Maria Bartlow, Monica Franks, Ann Foster, Ken Winnikin, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And I want to give a shout out to all the teachers I know, many who work in schools. I'm thinking of you and wishing you well. Abby Foster, Ann Foster, Janie Anderson, Alona Murley, Kathy Shamrell, Jim, Jill Mormon, Kirsten O'Malley, Marcy Caruso, Aaron Kennelly Beyer, Kevin Simpson, Stephanie Simpson, Becky Davis, Jamie Freeze, Terry Brasino, Kelly McLaurin, Jeannie Ruse, Amber Reedy. There are so many more. And a way to send you off into the week, I'll end with this original haiku. Our grief over loss could unite us in purpose. Will we make that choice? Chins up, everyone. <laughs>